Why, hello there. Hello. Craig, Craig, we just need you to give us a, a nice deep, like, well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> like it's master, it's a master podcast theater or something. It is time for the event that you have all been waiting for. Two podcasts, one love. An esoteric alliance formed so secretly, your friends in real life will never know, care, or understand what is happening. We now proudly present to you the acidic, unconscious, happy horizon. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is outcast. Hey everyone, this is not Cooper Cherry, this is Craig from Asset Horizon, and today, what are we doing? We're doing a team podcast, a Q&A, where we unify for one episode under the moniker of the acidic, unconscious, happy horizon. We've gathered questions from all corners of the internet, and our goal today in the discussion is just to kick back, relax, have a good time, and answer a few questions about philosophy, about life, about ethics, society, and just about anything else that comes our way. Your support really helps both of our podcasts. You can subscribe to either one of our Patreon accounts for as little as $1. That's far less than what you would pay for a parking ticket and pour a round of drinks at the bar or pub. We intend to have a great time in this discussion, so let's just begin. I'm your host, Greg, with the other host, Cooper Cherry. Hello, hello. And we got Taylor. Hello, I got lighting a cigarette. <laughs> and we have Adam, Will, and Matt from Acid Horizon here. Hello. Hello. I'll, I'll edit that to make that sound really fun. <laughs> so anyway, today we're just going to do like an informal Q&A hangout episode. We've received several tweet responses from folks on Twitter, some in our Patreon, and just going to have a lot of fun today with questions about theory, questions about life, questions about ethics, your questions. And I'm going to be kind of like the moderator throwing questions out to people. Let's just get right to it. And our very first question comes from our good friend, Jeremy R. Smith, LaRuelle Scholar. I like this question. What is the point of theory? And I'll give it to the Ma team first. Machine and Unconscious Happy Hour. What do you think, Cooper? What, what's the point of theory? Man, I just, I think I have to go with, uh, with Marx, right? change change the world right ultimately at the end of the day that's what it's about Tay, what about you what is the point of theory um it does seem like a like a loaded question to even Mm -hmm. ask the what is formed for something as vague and as general as theory but for me you know i always think about it as heightening positive affirmative affect right that's just like if we're going to change, if, if, if to change the world also means not to destroy it nihilistically, I'm not going to speak for Coop because he may, he may go that route, but I would go the opposite route, right? Where it's to enliven, but also the, you know, as the list says, it's, it's to harm stupidity, to harm those who would want power because that's the very opposite of what will to power means. So if it, if theory means anything, it means empowering positive, affirmative, 
lived experience. All right. Acid Horizon team. Will, what do you got for that one? You know, the answer that I like, and Taylor and I were talking about Madness and Civilization last night for a little bit. You know, Foucault was asked by a French journalist, you know, why did you write this book? And he gives an answer that's kind of close to the to the one that we get in Deleuze's letter to the to the critic, to the angry critic, where theory is depicted as a toolbox. Mm-hmm. But Foucault's answer is essentially we write these books to serve ends that aren't ours, that provide mechanisms and means for new possibilities for those who are not the author. Um, So that's how I think I've tried to approach these texts is, and I'm sometimes guilty of just always trying to situate it within a philosopher's canon, right? So like, let's take a difficult example of this, like Kierkegaard, right? You always play the game of where this is situated for him. But if you don't come away with some tool or some technology for your lived experience. I think maybe in some ways you've engaged with theory in a way that just isn't for me. So I guess the the long and short of it would be to essentially provide new possibilities for those who are not the author of it. Uh, it is to open up possibilities of flight for those who come across it. How about Matt? What do you got? Um, kind of a cheap answer, but I'm most, I mostly agree with just with Cooper over there. Um, I think Marx kind of gets it. I think theory has to be connected up with a sense of practical possibilities about changing the world for the better. Um, that means you know, that, that does involve theory, right? Thinking about how we do that and what that better looks like, right? And how we do that. And I, I, I but I also like, I liked Taylor's answer as well. It's kind of heartwarming as well. I like that one. It's wholesome more positive affects in the world, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's sort of like um, Spinoza's like Spinoza, right? They sort of living better in a way. I like that too. What about Adam? Talking about the, the points of theory, it does not necessarily mean, you know, we, when one writes theory or one reads theory, you have to have a predetermined goal mm-hmm. uh, when you're doing it. But overall, I would say the point of theory is um, a conscious, partially it's a conscious raising exercise uh, in which common sense is destroyed and the presuppositions of common sense, or at least revealed the you know, actual presuppositions. They're also the articulations of kinds of desire, particularly, for example, Kant, the critique of pure reason. There's a reason why Kant gets the kind of experience justified that Kant wants to have justified. It's um, There are articulations of desires, there are there are selections, decisions of meanings and what meanings be uh, counterposed to dominant meanings. Overall, yes, it, it's not necessarily to... I'm, I get kind of a little bit pessimistic about theory in the sense of it's also there to tell you how shit things are in a way. But it needs to do that with uh, a correlating expansion of the political imagination such that you can start to think... Well, no, you can start to think of ways of rejecting the things that are so shit even in the negative sense, you get something like Hegel, where Hegel was essentially showing like a series of failures and fuck ups, and then luckily you get out, you can get out of the system if you want. The system ends, and you've you've seen all these mistakes, and then you can do something different. And someone like Marx came in and and, and did do that, or Sterner came in and, and did do that, or Feuerbach came in and completely cocked it up. But I see, yeah, theory is for me is about political consciousness raising, imaginative enhancement, connecting yourself to that dark art of the soul that Kant called the transcendental imagination. That allows you to synthesize new connections of the points of, of, of your, your own desire and your own social situation. I don't know what I can add to all those brilliant answers. I, I feel like I've answered this question before in previous Q&As, maybe even twice. 
my basic go-to line on this is that theory has multiple meanings. It has multiple points. That's to say that statements have multiple functions and, and do different kinds of things. And I'm, I'm with Taylor. I'm sorry, I'm with Cooper and I'm with Matt. Of course, we want these theories to change our world. I, I think another thing that we we tend not to think about is that I like the unabashed enjoyment of theory itself. Often we're made to feel guilty when theory doesn't do something. But what about just sitting down with a book and being immersed in, in that kind of focus, that in and of itself, it, like almost in an Aristotelian way, like a, a kind of for itself activity. But lately, I've been thinking a lot about Blanchot and Jean-Luc Nancy and thinking about the ways in which theory, you know, we, we live among statements all day long. We're on Twitter and we all probably have the, the whole feeling of making that sort of cognitive shift from being on the screen to maybe going to a book and being on the page. And then the question is, when do we get out of the words? At what point can language, can statements, can theory sort of push us towards something ineffable? And, and keep us in a space where maybe we feel a little bit insecure or opened up to something that's not so egoistic and not punching us back into frames of reference that that we're, we're comfortable with. And so just to round out my answer, that might be one of the points of theory. What can we do with that? How can we sit in silence? What, what sort of words, what sort of poiesis, for example, is going to push us into a place where maybe we're just not so in an entanglement of language? But anyway, that's that's my take. Hello, Mr. Bataille. That's right. Um, here's a great question. And this comes from our other friend, Will, who's not with us today. They go by some kind of face on Twitter. They say, what is the piece of non-philosophical writing work that has provoked the most thought from you? And you can't say Proust, Kafka, Ballard, or anyone who self-consciously straddles the line between the two. That feels like cheating. And you can't say our toe either. And maybe we'll just go down the line. We know Coop's answer already, I think. But maybe. <laughs> okay. Man, um, for this question, I think I would probably have to go to probably Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, even though yeah, I don't think that he's on the level of a, a Proust or Kafka. Maybe not even a, well, Ballard's probably comparable, but it's a very deconstructive book. Um, it's very interesting, stylistically kind of essay. Uh, there's a lot of meta stuff going on. So it's very like it takes this sort of children's book approach to kind of like, I guess, the American dream or like sort of American propaganda, American family life and consumer life, and really just kind of takes a big swing at that. And I think really pulls it off masterfully. So I'd have to go with, again, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. Did I say Cat's Creek? Oh, like yeah, you said that. But <laughs> Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast awesome. of Champions. Sorry. Taylor, what about you? I mean, I, I have several references uh, that I could throw out, and it's hard to choose amongst them, but I'll be brief. I mean, I would, if I wanted to throw out authors, I would say Asimov or Robert Jordan. One of the first books that really hooked me as a child was uh, the Wheel of Time series, which Amazon may or may not yet fuck up. Um, we'll see. But if I wanted to be honest, and I don't know if this, I mean, I would make an argument that it does count, but if I wanted to be honest, I would say it would have to be the Bible. Mm. It's just an easy answer, but it's it's true, especially in the sense in which, you know, someone like Badu as an atheist reads St. Paul and is able to articulate this fourth discourse, right? That's not a hermeneutical discourse. It's not the discourse of the philosophers. It's this discourse of faith and fidelity. And I find that 
you know, the Bible kind of touches all of the, the nice points. You know, it has kind of an epic feel. It has a poetic side. You know, it's, it's got something for everybody, even if, it, it, but, you know, depending on how you come at it, obviously it can provide a whole worldview if one wishes and if that is, uh, and it has done that for centuries. But for me, it's always kind of provoked a type of thought, specifically if I had to say, pick out of it just to be, less general, uh, it'd be the book of Job because the book of Job for me always stood out amongst the other books insofar as in that work, we are given this view that there is no moral order to the universe and we have to struggle with that. And I think that that is, we can see that in the legacy of many philosophical thinkers. Uh, Matt, what about you? I'm going to have to go with probably the best piece of fiction ever written, 1984, which was a biting criticism of, of communism, of course, and really put the final nail in communism's coffin. Oh, thank but, fuck. Um, this is a bit... Oh, thank fuck. But, 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 um, <laughs> I had to do it. I, you know I had to do it. No, more, more seriously, there's a book from a couple of years ago called The Memory Police by an author called uh, Yoko Ogawa. I remember reading the blurb and it really did a disservice to the book because it calls it Orwellian, a kind of Orwellian story. It is for like the first 50 pages, and then it completely deconstructs that idea and becomes way more interesting. It becomes much more about how language, spoken or written, whatever, um, comes to shape our identity as individuals and, and how we relate to others um, in that way. It's really quite haunting, quite bittersweet. So I really, really enjoyed that book. And I'm absolutely going to get cancelled for saying this. I really enjoyed The Map and the Territory by Michelle Welbeck. I'm going to say it. Um, I, I liked that book a lot. I can cut that out later if you want. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Will, what do you got? I mean, like, I, if I could cheat, I would just say, like, Dostoyevsky's Notes from Underground. But, like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to do that because it seems like the the directions have forced me not to do that. And I'm not going to do Erewhon either because it gets, like, two explicit references from Dolas and Guattari. So, like, for me, recently, uh, a a book that that has been impacting the way in which I understand constitutive violence, divinity, and faith, even though I take issue with the author's understanding and recognition of the political, is probably Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, particularly the way in which we find not just competing notions of the law, which would be the conventional interpretation of the text, right? But also competing interpretations of what it means to destitute the law. And the the opposition that I'm I'm finding as I, I work through this book ever so slowly, because I'm also like, you know, doing grad school stuff and just drowning in like philosophy, is that there's a fundamental opposition not just between Valjean and Javert, but in fact, Valjean and the friends of the ABC. And it seems to me that Victor Hugo himself even fails periodically to recognize that in this narrative he's producing. So I I think for the Foucauldians out there who may be skeptical of modernist literature because they think it's all just going to be like a bunch of French Republican nonsense. There's definitely a lot of that in Les Mis. A lot of it is just like opinion pieces that are just shoved right into the middle of a narrative. Like he'll just write like a New York Times article, essentially. But uh, that would be a text that has sort of been stuck in my teeth for a little while. Uh, though I, though I'm not really, I don't, I don't 
you know, not, I don't have a project or anything that, I, that I'm dealing with pertaining to it. But yeah, that that would be that would be the the thing. <laughs> okay, Adam, you can't say Alistair Crowley. Go. <laughs> I was gonna say Uncle Al. Yeah, um, <laughs> you were. <laughs> I was actually gonna say Uncle Al. I mean, that that's more of a hangover from a more metal infused edgier kind of me. I mean, um, I mean, obviously Dune is the way it talks about global geopolitics. The way it talks about hydraulic despotism flows controls essentially control societies alan moore's promethea that's probably been one of the most in terms of thinking about the, the transcendental imagination the concept of creativity in general magic systems grant morrison's the invisibles yes so the psychedelic aspects of that have always been uh impressionable as well as uh, neil gaiman's the sandman mm. hell hellblazer which is the uh, John Constantine comic, but I think the but thing I've been going through recently is there's two things. There's the sermons of Thomas Munzer because in the first uh, part of the book, the one that Verso put out from Wu Ming, I mean, it's just an amazing tearing down of, theologically speaking, the tearing down of the princes, and also Martin Luther, who gets the absolute shit kicked out of him. He's once point called a donkey cunt doctor of theology, which I always enjoyed, but probably one of the most Influential books on me recently is something I picked up uh, a month or so ago called uh, Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumford. And it's this horror story about England. England is a horror story. Essentially, it's, it's a, a trans horror story about living in England and the creeping fascism at the heart of this cursed island, which isn't even an island, it's an archipelago, but it's so fascist, it's overcoded itself into <laughs> a, a singular island. And it just summarizes so much of the frustrations and cultural and political currents of this island and its past in such like an explicit and intense manner that it was, I'd put the book down at some points. It was quite guttural and it was, it was absolutely fantastic. All right. My cat has joined us. He's going to be on the recording. Um, so gosh, what do I got? I think I've kind of answered this question in the past too, but maybe I'll, I'll be a bit more specific today. Probably the, the non quote unquote theoretical reading that I have the strongest affinity for is poetry. And in the past, I would say probably in, in my undergrad days, I became really familiar with the work of Russell Edson and James Tate. And then also some of the language poets uh, of whom we will have one on the show Pulitzer prize winner, Ray Armantrout is going to join us next month. And I'm really excited about that. What's interesting about those books is, especially with Edson and Tate, they present these kind of parodies of the paranoiac tableau, the Oedipal tableau. And so by the time I got to Deleuze and Gattari, it was almost as if I, I, I was doing that already. Like I was doing anti-Oedipus, but just with those texts. And I would say the part of the positive program would have been doing like the language poets like Ray Armantrout, Ron Silliman, uh, the now disgraced Barrett Watton, and other folks too. But when I first saw this question, I originally read it as saying, what was like the first piece of non-philosophical writing that got you into theory? And I just remember in high school or junior high school reading Kate Chopin's Story of an Hour. And to me, that was like a wake-up call that someone else's life, it's, it's about a woman whose husband is said to have died. And that, I mean, you could call that story an existentialist parable of sorts. And that really 
had a grip on me. And the, and the fact that it's only like a couple pages too, like it just really stayed with me for days. And, and when I started reading Sartre, that story came back to mind. Those are, those are my bits. But it would have been cheating to say nausea or no exit, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess half so. cheating. You're, you're kind of half cheating. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We have some other great questions here. I'm going to skip to this one. This is from Hapticality25 on Twitter. They ask, how or does engaging with theory or philosophy help you navigate your day-to-day life? Cooper, is there any way in which you're actually using this stuff in the streets? In the streets? I I don't know if I'd go that far. (laughs) But I mean, I'm living theory every day for sure, whether it be shit posting on Twitter, which I'm want to do or you know every day i'm working on something for the podcast whether it be reading or editing so in that sense i'm engaging with philosophy on a daily basis and it really gives my life shape and texture and honestly frankly it gives me purpose uh doing the podcast is kind of like the thing that is sort of mine in a sense right it's it's sort of my my unique property uh that i share in intercourse with taylor and we create something that's uh greater than the sum of our two parts i think <laughs> Mm. And uh, that's what it's all about is the jouissance that it brings. And he's a hell of an interlocutor to boot. So I would just take it in, in that direction. But I mean, I guess also I should say that, you know, I'm always looking for lines of flight and lines of flight don't have to necessarily come from theory or philosophy always. It's like anytime I encounter an idea, there's potential for something to occur, mm. whether that be so I, you know, it could tr- send me on a different trajectory. You just never know what that trigger is going to be. And so I, I seek those moments where I can just bounce way off into the stratosphere and to some other direction off of a, an idea that I bounce up against in the, in the world or so forth. Taylor, are you taking any lines of flight on the daily? Are you engaging in, like I, I don't know how it's pronounced in French. Is it derivé? Are you doing anything like that? Like riding your bike down alleys or anything like that? Riding my bike. Oh God. I, I do have a bike. Um, and I should ride that bitch a little bit more, but, uh, but, but, you know, I do think some of the best thinking is done walking around. I mean, Aristotle may not have gotten everything right, but the peripatetic method is, uh, is pretty good. It helps to get the blood flowing, you know, Nietzsche himself questions idle thoughts or thoughts while, while, while seated, even though I'm on my ass right now, just relaxing with you guys. But Coop hit a lot of the, the high notes for me in his response, so I won't repeat them, but I do assent to them. I agree with them. And if philosophy or theory helps me navigate my day-to-day life, it would be in the sense in which you know Nietzsche talks about us thinking differently in order to eventually be able to feel differently. And so if that works, and I'm not wholly sure if it does, although based on my own experience, I feel like I've had some success in that my little crazy trajectory throughout the works I've read, throughout the works I've translated, has helped me to feel differently for better or worse. I'll go to Will. Will, has reading Foucault made you feel differently? Has it shaped your affect? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like it, uh, <laughs> it. It's made me insufferable to like health professionals (laughs) but like look um, to to say like i am a disabled person in neoliberalism right so like the way in which i relate to these various apparatuses has fundamentally changed i had a you know pithy answer that like 
you know, understanding processes of subjectivation made me, you know, feel less anger towards the people I disagree with because mm-hmm. they just, <laughs> they just found themselves in a different fold. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not their fault that they're awful maybe, <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that I, I don't believe in that total abdication, but no, like, I, I think it's important. I think Foucault has absolutely been instrumental in the way that I deal with these day-to-day issues but i also think that like it's not just the element of the apparatus or the juridico discursive like all of these broader systems but in fact like there are ethical elements there about engagement that you can find through foucault about the moment-to-moment possibilities no matter how ephemeral they are to resist these broader motions and like the thing is, I, I don't always take them, right? They dissipate. You know, every every conversation that I don't have with a struggling stranger on the streets of the city that I'm in is a world that dissipates, right? It's a, it's a possibility that is foreclosed upon, and it's a form of life that disintegrates right before me or my possibility to to kind of come into interaction with it, right? Maybe you could be more Spinozist of that. But I think that I like the question because I think it's just a good one to understand the value of philosophy, particularly in a contemporary age where like philosophy is treated as something that stands in relation to to the sciences, right? No matter where in that relation it might be, depending if you're like a Husserlian, right? Or you're, you know, one of these Petersonian contemporary analytic types who believes that philosophy's only function is to act as like the armature of like a broader public appreciation of this or that particular scientific discourse. But I will say that the question is predicated on a separation between lived experience and philosophy. And I think that it's that sort of disposition that leads us to the elimination of philosophy as being an inherent practice in life. The closer we get to this definition of analytic philo- of academic philosophy, Freudian slip, the, the faster the possibility of philosophy is absolutely foreclosed upon. Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think it's a good one. But that would be like my my pithy answer is that like there isn't really th- this this chasm between life and theory that you think there is. That was a pithy answer? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I want Will's serious answer now. I Fair have enough. to edit this. <laughs> so, Matt, I'm going to just pick on Spinoza right now because I know that you're you're dealing with Spinoza quite a bit. So in relation to the question that was asked about what are we doing? Navigating our daily life, right? Um, Mm. Has reading Spinoza sort of just upped your mood recently or what's going on? Yeah, honestly, so reading Spinoza recently, I I, I read The Ethics maybe six months ago, I think. And for whatever reason, nothing sort of grabbed me. I'm not sure why, Um, but I maybe a month or two ago, went back and read it again and it just grabbed me. And um, I always have trouble explaining why there's that passage at the start of Deleuze's book on Spinoza, Practical Philosophy. He quotes from a novel, I think, of some sort, and it's a man trying to explain to the judge what this guy Spinoza is all on, you know, on about, basically. And he, he can't quite do it, except that something about him kind of grabs you. And yeah, I think one of the things that it's helped me do, particularly I've, I've had quite a pretty, pretty rough last year, is ask a few questions about... Um, what the causes are, I guess, right? What the the root of it is, and how this how this all connects together, and something in the kind of 
affirmative joy, I guess, of 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 the ethics. Honestly, did I, don't, I can't explain what it's changed. It has helped actually in a strange way. On the one hand, you don't want to you don't want a reading of Spinoza, especially the ethics, which sort of reduces it to a kind of self help book, right? But there's also a sense in which it kind of is. He's desperately trying to help the reader lead a better life, basically. Yeah. Um, I think that's I, I really appreciated that in the book as well. So uh, yeah, that's that's my answer. Was uh, sort of a big one recently. He's been reading Spinoza and um, trying to get to grips with this pretty complex system, but which something in there has just sort of grabbed me and uh, yeah, it's helped me sort of think through what the causes of those things, are, my affects, my emotions, and so on, and uh, what what I can then do about that. And then for Adam, I, I just have to know: Are you thinking more through the prism of Hegel or Stirner when you wake up in the morning? Oh, it's always, it's always more Hegel. I mean, Hegel is a very practical philosopher, and I'm, I'm really? definitely serious really? about this. <laughs> wow. Well, I could well, just be Spinoza. I could just be, I could just be Spinoza, and then just write a bunch of axiomatize whatever I want, and then, then you know, I could just, Oof. I could axiomatize myself a better life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, Ooh, um, shots fired. Oh, look, he he tortured spiders for a living, for God's sake. I mean. But with, but with Hegel, you end up, for one, the, best, so the two practical lessons you can get from Hegel. One, uh, reflectiveness in terms of looking back on things retrospectively. A kind of forgiveness of the past can, can sometimes be helpful. Secondly, avoiding negative definition. Merely defining yourself by simple rebellion or simply defining yourself against something. Because then, if you've read your Hegel, you know that simply by defining yourself against something else, then as a mere first negation, you will become determined by it in every single way. And the third sort of practical aspect I get from Hegel is trying to catch yourself when you end up being a beautiful soul, you know, looking at the world and seeing how fallen and contradictory it is and awful. And then you just sort of, you, you think, oh, I can't study myself with this. I need to avoid it. Not, not simply refuse it in the sense of doing an active refusal in the world, but simply de- detaching yourself and staying in on Twitter or something. And of course, by attacking yourself in the world, being on Twitter all the time, you're actually exposed to all the horrors of the world at a much more intense rate. Uh, almost like a garden of Gethsemane kind of things. So avoiding beautiful soulism and avoiding negative definition are very good practical bits uh, to do with Hegel overall. Another sort of area I think has been helpful day to day wise is you can either read this in a Deleuze or Guattarian or an Althusserian way, it's sort of understanding what processes of subjugation are active and what certain positions you find yourself in are calling you to do what they're calling you to be or become. I mean, well, uh, when I was doing some teaching stuff, understanding what the structures were calling me to be and how I was sort of trying to live up to the ideal unconsciously. I mean, having that sort of step back the theory and questioning what the thing is calling me to be. For example, am I, am I being called to be this ideal of a teacher where I have to be, you know, the studious harsh on marking stuff like that and it's am i being called to a certain method of pedagogy and i think having that theoretical kind of circuit breaker of having encountered these systems in theory understanding how they work can help you sort of take a step back from the things you're being called to be uh takes theory gets you away from the the immediacy of things you can put a sparrow in the works that may not be itself given may not be itself immediate and also one of the best things is honestly uh I say the best thing in terms of consciousness raising is reading disability theory. Cause then you start to realize, Oh fuck, this stuff is everywhere. This, this pandemic shit, there's nothing new. These are extensions of the same mechanisms of eugenic 
uh, selection, and then you start to recognize them. You could you can you expand your frontiers of solidarity, although that does also often mean thoughts and prayers from a leftist standpoint. But you open up new avenues of solidarity because you start to recognize what things are actually at play. You start to realize the rules of the game of power, and then you can suddenly think, well, how can I break these rules? How can I subvert them? You won't find lines of flight in the day to day unless you're conscious that there's something already wrong. I'm not saying you need theory to do this, but it can help. So avoid negative definition. Don't be a beautiful soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to be a bit retrospective. Read disability theory. Go read Kelly Tremaine. Go read Will. Also, yeah, learn to be disappointed with theorists. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Learn to be disappointed with I mean, uh, the destitution is also Latin term for disappointment. If you can acquaint yourself with disappointment, then you can suddenly start sort of taking it on your own, sort of the sense, reconfiguring it for what you want. Agamemnon would not have been the fierce of destitute power if he wasn't disappointing on the on occasion. <laughs> so, destitute Agamemnon, um, it's okay that, that if anything that means he's more right because he's disappointing. I think my I'll keep it short since uh, there were some um, very pithy answers given to this question. I, I think in my case, I'm actually very similar to Adam in some ways. I'm just using different theorists. Um, in the case of like the beautiful soul, for example, or defining oneself negatively. I, I'm thinking in terms of, of Nietzsche, bad conscience, resentment, and, and those terms. And I was a teacher. And so I needed a set of tools to determine what people's students' values were at any given time so that I could understand how to connect with them and motivate them. And I mean, I think in general that it's good to have a sense of that. And often some of the values that I'm looking for in someone when I meet them is the extent to which they feel that obligation is important or that they are obliged to something, which maybe there is no specific material entity forcing them into obligation, but they have some overriding sense of of guilt in, in the sorts of language, like, oh, we have to do this. I, I must do this if I need to, you know, get to X, Y, and Z. And like, just kind of listening for those little things that can tell me the extent to which somebody might be motivated by, you know, sad passions versus joyful passions, for example. And then it lets me know what that person can do. I recently saw a Twitter post with Nick Fuentes, who I don't really know his work that much. Um, I know he, I guess he's a conservative, right? But his whole tirade involved nothing but obligation language, responsibility language. Uh, there was some self-deprecation, like this is the best that life can get. I, since I can't get this, I guess I'm going to get that. There's a little bit of reward punishment stuff going on. And it, it, it tells me in some sense that that person's dangerous in, in some ways or can be, like if I have to work with that person, for example, on the point of like nurturing or being called or being drawn to something, actually a very early part of my education was an East Asian philosophy. And I was kind of on the road to being a Confucius scholar at one time. And one of the concepts in, in Confucius is this, this concept, well, at least the way that I was taught Confucius is that it's important for us to be able to recognize what nurtures us, right? Like what is it that makes us grow? how can we better partake in those kinds of activities that are going to allow us to grow in the kinds of ways that we find either self-satisfying or builds the kinds of things that we think that we want. Over time, developing a sense of that, journaling about it, and eventually led me to create a kind of knee-jerk reaction. You know, if, if I'm in, I mean, if I'm in a job and it's shitty, like, 
I want to know at what point I need to get out of this. Or if I'm in a relationship that's like that, and if I don't feel that it's nurturing, you know, I'll let them know that that this relationship is not nourishing me or, you know, at least I have to know for myself. I'll say that much. Anyway, that was my pithy response. I forget who asked me this question, but they wanted to know, is it a worthwhile endeavor to try to make theorists like Deleuze and Gattari, Baudrillard, Agamben, Badiou, and, and any of the folks that we read, do we need to make these ideas either accessible or palatable to people who wouldn't be readers of them? I mean, especially if we have like political motivations, is it either important or useful to do that? Is it better just to direct people to, to the text themselves? What do you think? Is that a worthwhile endeavor, making theory accessible to people who typically don't read theory? I'll just put it to, to Machinic Unconscious Team, whoever wants to go first there. I would say, I guess if I didn't think that I there was some element of what we do that was contributing to making those thinkers more accessible, then I probably wouldn't be doing the podcast. Mm. I don't know that that's necessarily like the explicit focus, but I think that is part of it. I think it's like, you know, we try to, we don't try to do a, like an excursus or like a line by line decoding of a text. We're more like looking, okay, what are the, what excites us about this text? What relates to other ideas? What, you know, what are the potentials there more than anything? So, but I think that does open up, like, I think involving some pop culture stuff can sort of help people use their imaginations a little bit easier to absorb some of these more complex writings and language. If you're not familiar with psychoanalysis, for example, or those discourses, you know, um, I think it helps to give some kind of concrete sort of things that people are familiar with and they can latch onto. And then if they want to dive into the text themselves, you know, that's ultimately their decision. We can only kind of point out what we enjoy and what we find valuable and Hopefully in doing so, that creates something valuable beyond, like I said earlier, between what Taylor and I do dialoguing between ourselves or with guests. I, I totally agree with that. What Coop said, you know, if, if we if we weren't trying to make these things accessible and, and we didn't find them exciting in our own right, you know, I don't think we would. I don't think our dialogue would begin. So obviously for each reader, for each audience, for each thinker for each author the conditions of accessibility are uh, are variable and 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 should be tailored no pun intended to each for each and to each and i think that sometimes tearing with ideas that aren't so accessible is a necessary but it shouldn't be the the rule that should be the exception and i think someone like zizek is for Whatever his merits and faults may be, I think that he is someone who, at at his best, has utilized things like jokes and, as Cooper said, popular culture, or even like the difference in you know European toilets, for example, and finds in them material that uh, does surprisingly well to get across thinkers as difficult as Lacan and Hegel. Mm-hmm. So if 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 that could be one type of model for making accessible. I think there there could be definitely others. Obviously, that doesn't have to be the only method, but I do think that there are a number of methods for making some of this stuff that seems either inaccessible or not meant for a general audience that we can put the lie to that and, and show that that's not, that's not necessarily true. 
why don't we throw uh, Matt into the mix? Go for it, Matt. So I, I think most people need one of two things out of... We're talking about sort of explaining or helping make accessible philosophers. I think most people either need a reason to go and read a given text or author. So sort, of, sort of sell me on this, right? Like, um, why should I go and read that book? Because it is going to be... A lot of these texts are, are difficult and sometimes even boring. So if you can sort of give them a sense of why it's worth reading, like what it has to say about something in their life or in our sort of collective lives or an event going on right now, et cetera. I think that's a, that's one way of making it accessible without sort of losing any of the richness of, of these texts. And the other thing is I think people often just need a kind of foothold. They need to get their, their shoe in the door. Um, and if they can just latch onto something and they can go, right, I get this thing that Foucault is saying, then that often, I think, acts as a kind of entry point and they can then sort of branch out and begin to make connections with the other things that Foucault says, for example. And I think that's some, that's two of the best ways of going about it, not to simplify theory to the point where it's kind of hard to see any, any of the original text in there anymore. And also, I think, you know, some of the attempts to simplify or make accessible various sort of philosophers or theorists, whatever, kind of treat people like idiots, which I think is completely wrong way of going about it. I think people just need basically a reason to go and read this stuff and a way to get their foot in the door. And you give them those two things, then I think most of the time they'll be, you know, they'll be absolutely fine. So I, I, I think that's, that's my thoughts on making sort of philosophy and theory accessible. I think it's a good thing. Got to be careful not to, you know, simplify it too much, but yeah. Adam or Will? You got something for that? Uh, the one thing about simplifying theory, like I, I don't think it's necessarily about simplifying it, right? But it's about mm. mapping it, allowing through the experience of the professor, the critical introducer, whatever, to mm. give readers the necessary tool. Like one example is this. I know which professors in my program lecture in such a way that the lecture is only valuable before I read the text or after I read the text. And I think that's the kind of important distinction here, right? So there, there are some ways in which, and this is the, and Asset Horizon does this sometimes too. We, we operate at both modalities. Sometimes if it's a text we've never dealt with, you know, Craig will say, Will, Mad Adam, like, let's get some terms we want to define, right? Because this Benjamin Fontaine, Fontaine text is, you know, kind of difficult to, to wrap your head around initially. And we do that. But if it's the control society text, for example, because it's four pages, because a lot of the folks who toy around with our podcast, they might know some of the things that are going on here. We say, all right, let's have a little bit of, let's get a little experimental here. So it's this. It's not necessarily about simplifying, but it's about providing necessary tools so that these things don't look so alien. Because once yeah. you actually understand what, let's say, Heidegger means by in Weltsein, right? Like a lot of the stuff about Heidegger's, the recondite-ness of his text go away. It's just about mm. exposure and, and starting to know how to deal with these texts as uh, an experience that I think is helpful. Mm. Adam, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, not. Yeah, I think it's just to build on 
Will's and Matt's points, it is also it is a matter of selling people on and just sort of locating the text within what people want to get out of it. I mean, sometimes accessibility, which isn't always the same simplification, of course, but sometimes or just like just make it simplified, I think sometimes the simplification matter, it, it is what people want out of it. I mean, for example, you do want a text that's simplified because it's been assigned assigned to you as, as homework by you know, some sort of horrific or different disciplinary organization like a university or a communist party. Because um, that's people, can't I just get the dialectic now so I can go do the actual work? Or I need to write an essay on this. It becomes sometimes just, you want to get sort of the basics of the theory down because basically to save labor time, because a lot of theory texts are very labor intensive and simplifying them can be labor intensive, especially in text, especially in writing form. And historically, a lot of attempts to simplify theory like this. I mean, Eugene Holland's work on Glass Guattari is really good at um, conveying the ideas in context in a very sort of clearly written style. And then you've got some of the worst examples of, of you know, so-called simplification, which is Peter Singer's book on Hegel, which uh, was probably one of the worst books on Hegel ever written. But let's be honest, that man, he probably couldn't write well with so much blood on his fucking hands. But it's making things accessible. I think you need to locate things in a certain kind of desire, because even with very clunky fiction texts, you know, House of Leaves or uh, Ulysses, people will get into them. And that surplus enjoyment is part of tracing the desire that that theory comes with. I mean, some people just might... Not have to you don't you don't have to read being in time for example if if there's nothing that the text is offering you other than saying you've ticked off one thing on the list I think it has to be situated on a sort of case by case basis of what is the desire here what is to be achieved through this text and then you can think of how to convey it because it becomes a question of, of pedagogy or collective conscious phrasing or of the the particular mode of knowledge production itself I think in terms of making it simplified I mean. I know there's one geography teacher and a geography lecturer in the UK who uses nomadic war machine to create more for protest. And that's a good way of conveying the theory by demonstration. Demonstration of a war machine is a great, is a better argument for a war machine than a simplification in a, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, a very short introduction kind of thing. I don't know if I have too much more to add on that, except to say that very notable theorists have gone out of their way to make their own work accessible. And I'm thinking of Marx and Engels writing the Communist mm-hmm. Manifesto. But not only that, you know, just looking at today's politics and, you know, the sort of field of rivals that, that people doing philosophy have in terms of advancing these discussions, it's apparent to me that, well, for one thing, You'll see Foucault's name pop up on the timeline. You have his name is in the mouth of somebody like Jordan Peterson, Marx, and so forth. Of course, we have a prejudice. We have a bias here towards all of this stuff. But given that these names are now in the ear of the public, at least in the English-speaking world, I think it's incumbent upon us to make these ideas legible to people at least a little bit. If you're in an intro class in a community college for philosophy, Read the Communist Manifesto so the kids coming out of there know, or at least have somewhat of a sense of what communism is. Do a chapter from Discipline and Punishment or do Truth and Power by Foucault or something like that. So they walk away with a little bit of accuracy. And I think that's what we're, we're facing here today. I mean, granted, I, I don't know if that will ever be enough to offset what really needs to be offset, but that's my soapbox on that.
Yeah, I also think that Adam's point about the example is really important. I know that this is a conversation we have over and over and over again, but like particularly in like French phenomenology, so like texts by like Sartre or Loponti, and then even in like later texts by figures like Foucault, the example, historical or theoretical, is really helpful, I think. And learning how to explain those examples and why those examples link up to the broader theoretical structure of, say, being and nothingness. Why Sartre's eyes hurting links up directly to, you know, the relationship between thetic and non-thetic consciousness. Like being able to explain those things is really important because when a philosopher gives you an example, they're saying, I found this here. So I, I think that the, the example that, uh, you know, the function of the example is really important. And the example, the aversion towards the example is actually, particularly in European philosophy, uh, in some cases, is actually an ableist uh, construction. So Kant, in the Critique of Pure Reason, he says that uh, examples are okay, but he calls them the go-karts of reason. And the first time I read that, I was like, oh, cool, go-karts. I mean, yeah, it looks like Mario Kart, great. Turns out go-kart is actually a uh, supportive mobility device for a disabled person in, in that context. So it's, it is literally the ableism of... <laughs> Of, of Kant has transferred into a disdain for the example in certain strains of European philosophy, and of course, we're still digging our way but out. Like of so, that so much, so much of the time, especially in like American analytic philosophy, like some of it seems like that Rockwell Automations uh, video, you know, where the, the the they're selling that random techno babble machine. And it's nothing like it's a bunch of grad students wrote a wrote wrote a manual for machines. And oftentimes in like Anglo analytic philosophy, they're describing like the most simple thing in like the correspondence theory of truth. But they actually do engage in like for me, whenever folks accuse post-structuralists and post-modernists of of hiding behind their technological verbiage. I actually think it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> that that in fact it's these these lovers of of the fact and the logic that uh, tend to that tend to hide behind the instrumental nature of their language. <laughs> and in fact what you find is it's folks like Derrida and Deleuze and sometimes Foucault, though nowhere near as often, who are actually just struggling <laughs> to articulate these concepts. So it's it's not a question of of hiding at all. So the, the I think the example is is really important. You know, as much as Deleuze wants us to stay away from metaphor, which I think is a different problem. Okay, Adam is going to be the last person to answer this question, or maybe we just won't let him just for fun. What is to be done with Nick Land? His early theory is impossible to dismiss. His current politics seem irreconcilable. This comes from somebody named I am Nietzsche. Should we understand his shift as a result of abuse or re-territorialization gone wrong, like Heidegger? What does he disclose about the extent of fringe philosophy? So out of that question, I think that just the first, <laughs> the first question is really all that we need. What is to be done with Nick Land? And uh, th this goes to Cooper first. What do you what do you think, man? Uh, I say mute Nick on Twitter. And uh, I, I don't know. This is a very complex question because I haven't engaged with enough of his work to really feel like I can have a definitive opinion on his trajectory and. I don't want to make excuses for whatever he fashions from his exposure to Deleuze and Guattari or anything like that. 
But yeah, I would say, I think he's hyped up in his own brand of cope, honestly. <laughs> and I'll just leave that a little bit, uh, I guess, ambiguous because I, I don't have a lot to say, honestly, other than mute him on Twitter. Now, Taylor, uh, you've been on Twitter for a while. Were you actually like in the past, were you somewhat conversant with Nick Land before he was outed as just being who he is now or? You know, I, no, I never, I never got to, I never got to talk to Nick Land. I only knew him um, through my studies of Deleuze and Guattari. Um, so uh, some of his early articles from the nineties and um, you know, I know that in acceleration Twitter, which is where I started or where the, the little group that I knew starting, um, you know, I know that he, his thought had some cachet, but I, I kind of agree with Coop, like mute him or not, ignore him, you know, um, laugh at him. Cause that's kind of what Coop is talking about with, with Nick Land's brand of Cope. You know, I've only engaged with him a few times on Twitter, but it was always in a joking manner, not really making fun of him because, uh, you know, I agree with Coop, it's better not to really engage on that level. So I, I don't know this, this thing about fringe philosophy, if, if you even want to call it that. And I don't like to use the excuse of the whole thing is to dismiss him by saying he did drugs. Well, we've all done our brand of drugs, but it's kind of like in Vino Veritas, right? There's, there's a sense in which it's not like there wasn't something already there. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't fundamentally believe that, you know, it's, it's just, there's your true self just comes out a little bit stronger. So, but that's, that's all I really have to say, like mute them or ignore them, move on. There's no real reconciliation to be had. Yeah. And before I pass it to, to folks on Asset Horizon, I'll just say my bit. You can find out what I think about Nick Land in our Nick Land episode. Um, I think his work is actually on Dulles and Gautari is great. It's not perfect. It's very interesting. His the explication of concepts is, is very high level. But the irony is what he's doing today is just completely unremarkable on Twitter. Looks like something that would come out of one of my uncle's mouths. It's almost indistinguishable at times. And it just makes me think what a tragedy it is that you've had an intellectual who, you know, had this sort of unique flair and creativity at one time has descended to those depths. But Matt, what do you think? Um, I think Craig kind of nailed it. That's, that's the sad thing about it is that a lot of the Twitter feed is just uh, boomer shit, right? <laughs> that, that, that's the problem um, in a way. Um and it's just a little bit disappointing because some of our early work in Fang Numinos is really pretty interesting. I think he tends to read Deleuze and Qatari in a very lopsided way, yeah. particularly sort of this emphasis on sort of absolute deterritorialization. When, firstly, on a theoretical level, Deleuze and Qatari are pretty clear that it's always relative, right? Um, and also looking around the world today, that seems to have been more correct than Land's sort of hypothesis about that, right? Well, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my 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 gut instinct there. Beyond that, I, I honestly just don't see much value, particularly in terms of where, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a thesis at the moment. I haven't got any reason to engage with him. Um, I don't really find my Twitter presence any, you know, it's amusing sometimes, I guess, but uh, that, that's about it, really. It's almost I mean, even fallen from it's being amusing, like it used to be mm -hmm. amusing. And now it seems far less than that. No, no, you're right. Um, I don't really know if I had much more to say other than that. Um, I, I, yeah, I think his his reading of Deleuze and Guattari is pretty lopsided, um, and and that does lead to some interesting 
directions, but I think it's a, a mistake both theoretically and politically and practically and ethically. So um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Will? Look, if I was to, to say what like is to be done with Nickeland, this like episode would be removed from all the platforms. <laughs> but the thing that I'm going to take issue with in this episode is like, I actually don't think techno-capitalist racism is actually all that fringe. In fact, mm. so much of yeah. what we see in Nickland is actually so central to the functioning of biopolitical capital today that Nickland is actually just the apologist for so much of the contemporary tendencies in the biopolitical colorless gray concrete nightmare that we have to live from day in and day out. And so many miserable 24-year-olds can come online and say that this is remarkably prescient, but in fact, it's outdated. And the worst thing about it is he's not just your enemy, he's the apologist for your enemy. He's the pathetic kid that sits next to your enemy. So in a certain sense, I don't think there's anything to be done with him that isn't whatever. You don't like him. I know. I, I, look, tell us how you really feel, Will. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'll we'll decide now whether we want to let the Adam Jones. Okay. Tiger Cage is open. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Will just right, okay. It. This is the last question I'm answering on Nicholas Land. Read Fang Numna. He's a great scholar of Kant. He's a great scholar of Deleuze and Guattari. I would say, um, yeah, buy, buy it from the publishers. I mean, uh, Urbanomic, that's some fantastic stuff. Robin's great. Support Robin, support Urbanomic. Fantastic. I've put the books down because I've read them. And I think at some point you have to decide whether to give a thinker more of your time, whether it's productive, whether it's useful. Nicholas Land is not worth my fucking time. I know what he represents. He wouldn't like representation, no. Uh, but he is the force for the enemy, essentially. He is the, the voice of the enemy, him and Moldbug. I've read The Dark Enlightenment, I've read Fang Newman, uh, and they're always, and the thing is with his fans, it's always going to be a sort of a, but you haven't read this, or uh, he's, he's riled you up, see, and it's always a trick to get you reading him. He's from a very strong tradition of British contrarianism that saw cyberculture as this great all-dissolving force. Uh, that was going to basically flatten everything, give us these escapes, and be this uh, kind of quasi-junglist escape into the anonymity. And actually, it was a good thing. And this was, of course, because the other flights of, from capitalism at the time were collapsing or had already collapsed and were very disappointing. That line of flight is, is over. That's, that's gone. We've even spoken. I mean, yeah, we've even spoken on Zero Books Archives of people from that scene. No, it's gone. What he takes from Deleuze and Guattari is the idea that subjectivity is a product, there are means of subjectivation, and it can be produced otherwise. He does not believe we can really seize the means of subjectivation. He has given his lot into a new kind of hydraulic despotism where it is to be controlled by separate government corporations and they, it's just their job to brainwash you. You can select different ones if you want amongst these thousands of Lichtensteins. And it's, it's simply taking it away to more efficient forms of subjectivation. He has given up on seizing the means and simply wants them to be, he wants a bigger market consumer choice. 
And insofar as people say, you know, you should read Nick Land on this, you've got Nick Land wrong on this, there's, you know, give them a place at the table. I'm just going to sort of answer in their own terms and say, look, this is not how I'm going to spend my time or my money. No voice, free exit. So um, shut the fuck up and uh, fuck off. And I'm not, I'm not going to be reading any more of Nick. I'm not being engaging with any more of Nick's stuff because his world would be an absolute hell. And it's one that he's, he just wants to have it more so. I mean, if we already know we're opposed, even semi-ironically, I don't really see the point of engaging with him. His early stuff is great, yes, on cyberculture. And I think he's really given the amphetamine community a bit of a bad rap, to be honest. I, I think it is it is this... He's no different to anyone from fucking Spiked or Houston or the Houston Manifesto lot or New Labour. It's literally just, we tried finding a line of flight out in the 90s and it collapsed and because democ- and democracy is the problem, uh, so we have to go fully corporate so we can liberate ourselves. And it's 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 essentially a black metal ideology. If we there's no there's no real point in engaging with it, in engaging with him. I mean, I think there's going to be some great fucking scholarship on Nick Land when he's dead. I don't I don't listen to Morrissey records. I don't read Nick Land blog posts. I'm not saying anyone else shouldn't, but it's like it's like um. Foucault on Marx. Stop talking to me about that man. I don't want to hear about that man anymore. And I stand, I stand opposed to everything uh, he believes in. So that's uh, that's that's it for Nick. This question here might just be for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour because you've worked with Lacan quite a bit, and I think this question is sort of directed at the rift or the perceived rift between Lacanian studies, Freudian studies, and Deleuze-Gautarian studies. And it comes from Noah. They say, maybe an undergrad question, how do you read psychoanalytic-based books? Say, Event Horizon, the new book from Zero. I know that Coop got a hold of that, and uh, I just finished it like two weeks ago. After having spent time reading Deleuze and Gautari, and I think what this presupposes is, wasn't Deleuze and Gattari's takedown of Lacan and, and all of those concepts enough? Like, are we, are we just done with Lacan? And then they continue, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but how do you go through those texts with a, a Deleuze and Gattari lens when, for example, like a book like Event Horizon is completely based around, around psychoanalysis? Or, you know, I'm also thinking about the work of Isabel Millar. I know that's somebody that you've dealt with. I'm not sure where your commitments or credences are in terms of where you draw the line between Deleuze and Gattari and Lacan, but how do you do that? Maybe, Coop, since you've looked at Event Horizon a little bit, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, we just have to do the disclaimer that anti-Oedipus is not anti-Lacan, it's not anti-Freud, it's not anti-psychoanalysis. Uh, you know, we've said that a bunch. Taylor said that, I think, primarily, of course, on the on the podcast. But, uh, I mean, to me, Lacan is just happens to be one of the most I don't think he's the best philosopher theorist or psychoanalysis but he's one of the most creative there's just something unique about the milieu that he grew up in and that's kind of post-war period as Guattari says about him but I just think that the creativity within his theory alone is impressive there's something that I I see a value in. And I think that, you know, obviously having a respect for Deleuze and Guattari, I think Guattari, obviously, like he said himself that this, the same thing when he was at the Sorbonne, it was, he stumbled onto Lacan and like he, Lacan blew his mind. There was no one out there doing 
what Lacan does. So I do think psychoanalysis still has value. I think Lacan still has value, even if he's not 100% correct about everything. There's no thinker that's going to be able to, other than Hegel, of course, right, that'll be able to provide this this, uh, universal for us. But I mean, I think Lacan is just immensely creative, even if he is kind of a piece of shit in his personal life. And I think Guattari saw that. And that is also sort of a social proof as well. Like if Guattari found Lacan valuable enough or interesting, and that sort of triggered his line of flight from psychoanalysis, then I think it's it's worthwhile to dig into those concepts and, and see what we can learn. Taylor, what do you think? The only thing I would add to that is when I read a thinker, I try to do it as charitably as possible. I've gotten past the point of hate reading, and I feel like that's that's a very unproductive use of time in any case, and it and it leads to negativity that that it in itself is isn't productive. So you know when I read Lacan, especially the seminars, which are still slowly being put put out because of a stranglehold from the son-in-law. You know when, when I read someone like Lacan, I try to read him as best as I can on his own terms or within the framework with, with, within which he's working, you know, this, this kind of resurrection and recapitulation, but also remodeling of psychoanalysis. And I think it, that that's the most productive way too to, to read Deleuze and Guattari is to grant them their, their points, but to keep in mind that they aren't necessarily either correct about everything or that necessarily they have to dominate every reading. I think if one goes into doing stuff like that, then, you know, you become like Deleuze doesn't need to be defended, right? Deleuze doesn't need someone to uh, cheerlead for him. And therefore I'm going to hate read Hegel, right? Because I'm, I'm taking up Deleuze's torch. I think that that kind of fan, I'm not going to say fanaticism, but that kind of playing fans, even if we as humans sometimes fall into that and the Olympics are going on now too. So we can think about like the gold medals in the history of philosophy. I just think that that's not a, it's not a productive use of, of my time. I just think that you've got to approach each thinker within their milieu and within their framework as best as one can while still obviously maintaining a critical distance and all of that, right. Given all that. And we have our own prejudice, our horizons of prejudice and all this, but that's how I at least, productively try to read these these thinkers and 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 maybe they are not reconcilable right maybe Lacan and Guattari aren't going to agree on everything but that there's a productivity in that tension and if one can like pay attention to that you can you can kind of play them off each other like like a tuning fork and maybe hear some kind of resonance I mean I read the the event horizon book and one of the things that I was thinking uh, I'm not very strong in Lacan I, I know the basic concepts but I'm pretty hazy on the details. But one of the things that I was thinking when I read this question was, if Deleuze and Gattari provide a critique of Lacan, and you're getting a critique of incel culture, as you are getting in this Event Horizon uh, text, well, I think you can just reconfigure the explication in terms of the way that Deleuze and Gattari position a sort of critique against Lacan. You can find those terms and just kind of remap everything. But then again, you do lose something like that. But and, and I agree with Taylor there, too. It's kind of nice to explore those tensions, maybe a Lacanian analysis of American subcultures, Internet cultures, 
for example, might produce something interesting or important in a way that Deleuze and Gattari's analysis might not. But once it's out there, then you can kind of go back in and see what Deleuze and Gattari can do with that. And I'm thinking, for example, you know, one of the the big notes in this book is the idea of the sexual non-relation and how sexual impulses or intensities get expressed through heteronormative gender norms. And I think there's a way to talk about that in terms of anti-Oedipus, for example, like the way in which desire gets organized, the paralogisms of desires, the signifier of heteronormativity, for example. We can we can kind of rewire the, the Lacanian explanation of these things to suit, to a certain degree, Deleuze and Gattari's interests and their critique. So we have another question here. This time we'll start with Acid Horizon, folks. Ozymandias asks, what thinkers do you have respect for despite disagreeing with or disliking them? Matt, what do you think? Oh, put my spot. In a certain way, Hegel's sort of the obvious one for me, although I, I'm not I'm not partisan about this um, with the, like, the whole like, Deleuze-Hegel thing. Like um, Taylor was just talking about people who sort of feel the need to sort of defend Deleuze, right? Um, and there's also this tendency to sort of hate read authors or thinkers that he doesn't agree with. And, you know, sort of go into reading Hegel just so you can understand why Deleuze was right about him. I don't like that. Um, Hegel in a way. But um, for me, uh, as an undergrad, uh, I was doing, I studied political philosophy. It's mostly a sort of analytic one. And I developed a kind of grudging respect for Robert Nozick because, but firstly, almost none of his arguments actually work. But it, it's, firstly, it's really beautifully and clearly written. I think it's, it's sort of, Technically speaking, it has a lot of virtues there. Um, I love how honest he is about the flaws in his own arguments. Like a lot of the time he'll openly say, like, I think I'm still right, but if you wanted to go at this argument, you'd probably want to push me on this point. And he'll, he'll even argue against his own position sometimes, to be honest about it. Yeah, no, I, I just sort of appreciate his honesty about um, not being so certain that he's absolutely correct. And there's even a point in, in Anarchy State and Utopia where... Um, he, by following the logic of his own argument to its conclusion, he, come, he he realizes that he would essentially have to agree to a sort of one-time enormous global redistribution of wealth, a kind of reset, basically, um, which is sort of the most <laughs> opposite of what the libertarian sort of viewpoint would be. So I don't agree with pretty much any of his, pretty much any of his views in that book. I, I think it's a well-written book. It's clear. I, I like how honest he is. That's probably a go-to one for me, would be someone I sort of respect, even though I disagree or dislike them. Adam, what about you? Um, Marx. <laughs> I knew he was going to say it. Not necessarily because I disagree with him, because to say one disagrees with him, you'll have a flurry of uh, places where he said a better thing than the thing you're disagreeing with, because that's the good thing about Marx. Uh, I just dislike him. I, I enjoy reading him, but sometimes I... I don't like Nietzschean snark. It's the same thing with me with Nietzsche. I don't like the kind of Nietzschean snark you get. And this is funny from coming from a Sterner guy, I know. I agree with Marx's work a lot, but I don't like the guy. I, do, I don't like the, the, the blueprint he put for different kinds of the earliest forms of leftist infighting. I think I also agree with some of the historiography stuff on the national question, which I think people like Cedric Robinson bring out quite well, but it's going to be productive. I'm not an anti-Marxist, don't worry. I, I, I love the magic grandpa, but if, let's, do, let's do a serious answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, disagree with him. Fuck. I respect some of his work on nothingness. I quite like his work on nothingness. 
Um, of course, respect is a, obviously a, a vague term here. If you ever see, if you ever had to see Heidegger, you would have, have to give him a, a good old decking. In terms of people I actively disagree with in terms of theoretical tendencies, I mean, always have everyone has their favorite reactionary. Everyone has their favorite reactionary. I mean, maybe that's a problem. Um, G.K. Chesterton, I really like reading a bit of G.K. Chesterton. His views on suicide are absolutely abhorrent, but I do love the sort of the cavalier writing style. The guy clearly loved being alive, and I, I can't fault him that. I was going to say Feuerbach somewhat, but Feuerbach, his conclusions are absolutely horrific. So as a favorite reactionary, I mean, it's not going to be Nick. I've already said this. Robespierre is quite good. It's right, not react. Robespierre is not reactionary, but Robespierre, despite his actual theoretical works, are pretty solid um, in terms of his stuff on on rights, in terms of his stuff on the king. I mean, Kant somewhat as well. We disagree on a lot, but I think the stuff he's right on allows you to get through Kant. I respect I respect some of the, I respect Hegel, even though some of the stuff he says, I mean, I should follow his own advice and crack his own skull open and to expose his own problems, his problematic works on on uh, phrenology in the late parts of the encyclopedia. I think that there, there is always a question with these aspects of respect is, you know, one or several Hegels, how many Hegelian wolves are there, so to speak? So I think when it comes to this question of respect, you need to sort of find different intensities out of the work that are productive or are useful. I mean, I have disagreements with a hell of a lot of philosophers. I mean, you got you got to be you got to be in the, you got to be in, you're always in the the corner as a Sterner guy, and even Sterner's fucking his parodies of Hegel pretty much unjustifiable. Um, also, Bruno Bauer's another one, and I mean this because of his works on sort of starting young Hegelianism off. I'm not talking about on the Jewish question, which was probably one of the most painful reads I ever read. It's it's absolutely. I mean, Everyone thinks Marx's response to it is bad, but what he's responding to was probably some of the worst, the worst cases of European uh, left anti-Semitism ever recorded. So, Will, what about you? You know, I could say like folks uh, like Butler, uh, you know, Rorty initially was really important to me, just learning <laughs> philosophy, uh, you know, contingency, irony, and solidarity. Even though you know, returning to it, its depictions of even Habermas are just absolutely uh, awful. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm actually going to take the take the real the real I disagree with them but respect them route and choose a figure maybe some folks don't know because you know who doesn't know Butler. I'll say Tobin Siebers, whose work was really important to me when I was first starting to engage with disability studies. Uh, in many ways, Tobin Sieber's work lays out the foundation for a lot of what we'll see in, in crypt theory. Sieber's interpretation of the epistemology of the closet is kind of what's allowed me to toy with this notion um, of crypt visibility strategy that I otherwise wouldn't have, but I fundamentally disagree with Sieber's treatment of of new realism and his idea of a, a return to, uh, I think, what could be a, a dangerous corporeal medical realism. But I think his attitude towards disability liberation is admirable and remarkable. And I would not have come across figures in, in the disability canon like 
for example, who we had on the show and who we talk about a lot, Tremaine, were it not for my forays into into the works of of Tobin Siebert. So he'll he'll be my I just fundamentally through and through at, at, at almost at every point disagree with him, but thoroughly respect and appreciate his project, even if it is just so completely outside of what I'm doing. Machinic unconscious crew. How about you folks? Taylor, we'll start with Taylor. You know, um, I would throw out there someone like Baudrillard. Coop and I, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that Coop and I got to do Symbolic Exchange and Death. That is, uh, it, it, what I like about Baudrillard is he, he kind of, he, he has the best aspects of a magnet. He repulses me and attracts me at the same time. It's very, um, uh, he's, he, he frustrates me. He's obviously brilliant. So even if I don't agree with everything he says, and and I don't think there's any thinker for any of us that we would say that about. I'd also say Freud. You know, yeah. he's someone I take very seriously. Someone I read very carefully, and you know, there it's obvious. And there are different camps. Obviously, there's different Freudian camps. There's also different psychoanalytic camps and different ways. Freeing Freud, there's obviously problematic stuff about sexuality, as as we know. I don't have to bring out a dead horse, but you can see, like in the, the three essays on sexuality, um, the way I was taught it from a from a Laplanchian, because I think Laplanche actually does a great deal, even more than Lacan in some areas. I think to correct Freud on on certain issues. But you can see how the 1905 edition of Three Essays of Sexuality, like Freud does with many of his other works, uh, he's later on adding these footnotes and additions. And you can see like the, the different theories of the stages, right, of leading up to the phallic stage, right, from the, um, from the oral and the anal, blah, blah, blah. So stuff like that, that, that gets that when Freud... This is this is kind of what Deleuze and Guattari say, and I agree with them, um, that they want to preserve the the exploratory Freud and get rid of the sort of um, they have three different versions of them, two of which they want to get rid of. But I'll just be quick. The one that I find tedious is when Freud is getting older, he's worried about the legacy he's leaving behind and he's wanting to be more and more. Uh, rigid and more and more universalizing, like with the Oedipus complex, for example, and castration, which Lacan too takes up in many ways and makes it a universal through, but through the domain of language instead of identification, blah, blah, blah. So Freud's someone that um, I respect the hell out of and think he was a pioneer, but it's, it's that aspect of him that I admire most and I'm very critical of the of the papa of psychoanalysis trying to lay down the law. Coop, what about you? Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna totally contradict myself, and probably I have to mention Nick Land. I I don't know if I respect though. That would be the hard part. I respect his ability as a writer. I think primarily the way that he writes is a voice that I myself like. If I was gonna the way that I envision myself as a writer, like I, his stylistic, his prose, I think, is the kind of batshit type thing. That's like my vibe. That's the kind of Nietzschean, like, let's fucking go. I, I vibe with that a lot. Obviously, Adam and uh, Will, I think, said pieces that I don't need to repeat about, you know, where he is now or whatever the case may be. 
But I would say, yeah, as like a pure writer, absolutely respect his ability. The better answer is probably Hegel, I think. Although, you know, I find some of Hegel a bit, I guess, stultifying or like the cut, like the, the universal, like all of that kind of stuff feels a bit, you know, I'm not, I'm not very comfortable in that world, but you know, obviously I feel like dialectics, Hegelian dialectics is very much like, it's a useful tool for analysis. I mean, I don't think you can necessarily always use it for every situation, but it is a very powerful tool for, for ideas and concepts. So I think you have to give Hegel his due there. But not Kojev. That man, he's irrespectable. <laughs> he destroyed French Hegelianism for years, but he did give us Bataille, so you've got to hand it to him. Yeah, for me, um, you know, I'm glad Taylor brought up Baudrillard. I, I have, haven't even thought of Baudrillard as being somebody who both pisses me off, but is also so exciting. The most recent thing that I read by him was last summer. I read America. And especially the latter portions of that book, there are times where I'm like, yes. And the next sentence, I'm like, no, to the point of almost angering you, right? He idealizes American culture in that book in a way that's almost parodic. Of course, he's coming in as, as a foreign national doing it. And of course, then he has some astute observations and then some things that I think are just really far off the mark. I, I also agree with Taylor, like Freud would be somebody who, who kind of comes on to this map for me here, but probably my favorite reactionary thinker would, would have to be Carl Jung. Primarily, it, and I, I like him for, for many reasons, but if we're talking about Deleuze, for example, I think I respect Carl Jung's thinking, thinking in the face of Freud. Think about how difficult that was, for one thing. And the way that he was able to incorporate the concept of a, a multiplicity in the unconscious, in the form of archetypes. And it, we, we could even say that from Jung, we get a kind of decalcomania, like we, we talk about in the Rhizome Plateau, where we can use these archetypes or we can observe the contents of the unconscious through the lens of these various decals of archetypes that we can assemble together to produce meaning and so forth. Ultimately, I, I don't think that Carl Jung's project, like when it, when it comes to the analysis of the unconscious, I don't think producing a singular life meaning is the ethical project that interests me the most. I mean, for some people, I can see why they would need it because sometimes there are people who feel, you know, a, a very vacuous sense of meaninglessness and that kind of work would be important to that kind of person. And maybe Plato will throw Plato in there too. Somebody who I fundamentally disagree with, but love to read. Maybe we'll kind of like wrap up on one big question. Does this sound good? Um, how about this? I'm going to take Henry Wallace's question here, but I'm going to add something to it. Henry asks, Henry asks, how do we save true education from the clutches of universities? But I'll add to that question this. Given that we're all podcasters, that we're doing philosophy in some sort of para-academic capacity, I would add to that, like, is there anything that, that you know, and I'll, I know we understand this for ourselves in Acid Horizon, but for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, like what has the podcasting format done for you? And maybe even all of the, the, the other things in that assemblage, Twitter, social media, and all of that. Like what, how has that impacted how you understand educating yourself, be, becoming autodidacts, for example? 
And how has it impacted your research methods and what you consider important in philosophy? And and Coop, I'll just throw it right back to you. I mean, I think that, you know, technology, like techno capital is already driving this to a certain degree with the way that, I mean, the educational system. And I think primarily COVID has accelerated that where there's a couple of dual pincer moves happening uh, structurally where I think there's a concerted effort to undermine public education at the you know K through 12 level in this country that is seems to be doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, the working conditions for teachers have been absolutely abysmal. So you have the labor pressure that is going to be a, a, just a total nightmare um, on the on that side of things. On the other side, technology is also advancing. Things like the metaverse, you know, we're using Zoom, etc. Like these tools are already sort of eroding. Uh, I think institutional power from some in some sense, right? Potentially, I mean, those there's certainly the likelihood they'll be captured by institutions, whether those be the existing university. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that they're nimble enough to realize what's happening um, because they don't, they lack their, you know, they're so sort of blinded by their institutional uh, stance. So there is that aspect of it on the structural sides. Again, I don't know that I would say that the sole mission of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour is, is to educate. I think that's perhaps a side effect. I think the, for me, it's about it's about jouissance. It's about having fun. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of fun. I try to be honest. I try to give every thinker their due and try to find lines of flights within them for my own, I guess, edification. And if, and if learning comes along as part of that for other people, that's great. That's a sort of surplus side effect. You know, if we're creating value that people recognize, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm just trying to have fun and like explore these ideas. And, you know, also, you know, my background, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have a PhD. I'm not in grad school. I do have a master's degree. So like a lot of this is new material for me. It is sort of an autodidact sort of experience or a methodology, I guess, for me. And so I'm trying to like catch up on, you know, a hundred plus years of psychoanalysis, et cetera. Right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, also the history of philosophy, et cetera. So, you know, I'm still playing catch up to a lot of things, but obviously I love it. And uh, I couldn't be happier doing the show. And now that Taylor's with me, I feel like it's incredible. It's the highlight of my week. Awesome. Taylor, what about you? Yeah, I love what Coop said. I mean, it's, it's you. I don't think we would be doing this if we, if it stops being fun at some point for, for us, you know, I don't think it would be able to continue. And so, you know, it's, it's, you can call it an assemblage or, um, you know, an ensemble, whatever you want to say, but, you know, having someone to, to think with and to learn with, right. Deleuze says the, the, the best teacher doesn't tell the student to do like me, it's to do with, do along with me. Right. And I think that that's something that um, we try to do where, you know, we, we we are trying to have this experience and share these these discussions and these kind of you know the the logaric experience right this flow of words and we want to hopefully as a side effect because it isn't the coop's right if there is a side effect of learning you know i hope that that the audience can learn along with us and to get a little bit of that uh excitement 
and a little bit of that enjoyment, that surplus enjoyment, and hopefully that will, if not invest them into the text that we are doing, then at least give them some potential energy to go back reinvigorated into their own tasks, be it intellectual or otherwise. So this question about saving education from the clutches of university, you know, I'm not sure if there is going to be a satisfying answer. And I don't, you know, you could say that if the podcast form, if our podcast, hopefully if Acid Horizon inspires or enlightens or enlivens, you know, that would be, that would be excellent. That would be a, a great side effect. But, you know, like Coop said, we're, we're doing this too, because it gives us motivated to, to read and prepare and to think about these things. And it gives us a, a chance for us to do this together. So there's that added bonus enjoyment. And we want to share that. I mean, that's when I started translating, it initially was a selfish thing. So I could understand these texts that I didn't have in a language that I was fluent in. But as a side effect, I not only gained a certain fluency in a different language, but got the kind of, you know, the courage and the willingness to share with others. So I think the fundamental aspect of this is sharing. And if that can be enjoyable and if it can be educational as a as a as a bonus, then that's great. The question about the future of education, we can see some of it now, whether it be TED Talks or podcasts or, you know, uh, bootleg translations or especially like YouTube videos. There's a if you have to fix something or prepare something, there's probably a fucking YouTube video out there for you. So things like that, this, these different, the access that people have, um, especially with online media, to to learning things that another generation would have to get a handbook for in an impersonal experience or take classes for. You know, I think that perhaps that's one way that the uh, university becomes decentered and more accessible, but that's that's kind of an obvious <laughs> answer, right? But I don't have anything really else to. I'm not even sure about saving true education. I, I don't necessarily like that phrasing, but I'm not criticizing Henry Wallace here. Just it's just not how I would phrase it. Just to build off your point, Taylor, I was an undergrad a long time ago. I didn't even start looking at Dulles and Gattari until a few years after that. And then I went into grad school. And even then, I didn't read a lot of Dulles and Gattari at that time. And I'm picking on Dulles and Gattari in particular here because of the numerous conceptual terms that they use. And if this were something to that you would approach on your own, it would feel quite ponderous, I think. Not only to learn these terms, but then to find any venue in which to employ them usefully or regularly in a way that would give you any sense of competence or fluency with them. And what's amazing is, you know, for all its faults, you have social media, you have Twitter, Facebook, whatever you use. We have the podcast format. And I think we are using their language in the way in which it was somewhat intended, in the sense that there is this assemblage. You know, we're all living in different cities across the world here using these terms. Sometimes they're used with uh, exacting precision. Sometimes we use them in jokes. And those are the kinds of moments that 
build you up and give you the theoretical muscles and give us a, a heuristic or a framework to think through, you know, even to talk about decentralizing or deterritorializing th those sorts of things. I, I can remember my first pass at Duels and Gatari just, you know, looking for all the mentions of deterritorialization. What are they talking about? But now it's second nature in some ways, right? Maybe I don't have it right every time. I mean, they use it with some imprecision throughout their text too, or at least it changes across the texts. And that's what I find exciting. I can't imagine that in the 90s or in the early 2000s, for example, that if there was a student, maybe one or two students studying this work and maybe one professor who is working with that, if you could build the same sort of collective dexterity and rapport that we're able to do doing this kind of format, studying philosophy in this sort of way. So that that's kind of my, you know, thumbs up to podcasting, thumbs up to social media. Like that's, that's I think, one of the big pluses of this platform. <laughs> well, I think like you could just say that like one reveres a teacher poorly when one remains a pupil, right? And like part of the problem is like the way in which we structure a lot of classroom interactions is... Precisely, again, we're going to pick on those and guitar here, like precisely the problem of the swimmer and the wave, right? The teacher is oftentimes says, do as I do rather than do with me, you know, just to take that from the difference in repetition seminar that we had last summer. But yeah, that, that would generally be, I'm, I'm just on board with everybody else. Adam or Matt, and then maybe we'll wrap this up. I don't think it's education needs to be saved from university as much. Because information has kind of spread out so much for these new platforms of, you know, downloading PDFs on free websites. Um, when education or when theory in particular stays within the university context, that's more of a matter of it not being, you know, it's a matter of not being proliferated in the wider culture, and particularly anti-theoretical, anti, honestly, anti-thought kind of culture. I mean, just looking at Britain, a lot of theory books you wouldn't find unless you was looking. You're looking for them. You're not going to hear about it on the BBC or in any of the newspapers, and you wouldn't because those things are hostile to the notion of thinking in general. You'd have to already be in that sphere, part of the game, have a tradition for your family, be lucky. The material conditions are completely different. I mean, this is an indictment of British philosophical culture as a whole. Is that the closest thing we have to a public public philosopher of you know, quite commonly known here is someone like Kathleen fucking Stock. That's an indictment of the entire intellectual culture and the withholding of it within the university and within a higher level discourse when, I mean, most people who, who are reading theory in the, in the media are probably like, you know, the ex-Trotskyists who now you know, have insinuated themselves in most of, our, most of our media and political apparatuses. But the university has its good parts, particularly the parts of which university kind of escapes from itself. I mean, um, Thinking about the Undercommons uh, by Moton Harney, university is a place of refuge, and it's it's a good one in that sense. I mean, we we need more of them, but it's in a way a place of refuge where thought may not be necessarily or culture or new kinds of life or existent kind of life that are oppressed aren't necessarily cultivated, but they're given a little bit of space to breathe, and this is the place where it happens. And that, and university isn't the best place for that, but in any sort of attempt to take it sort of uh, destroy the university you don't you need to sort of provide for it what it does in a better way i think the the thing needs to be liberated from the university is an education it's vocation 
the vocation of theorizing, the vocation of teaching, the vocation of thinking, the vocation of writing. That's what's locked up in the university. The idea you need the accreditation to do this. I mean, the idea that you have to have a, X, things published in X journal or Y journal on page published, you speak at X conferences. Those are the things that need to be taken away because otherwise theory becomes something you can only do for a job as a professor, as, an, as someone who's in, got all the right channels, or it's nothing. It's, we need to take away this idea that the vocation of study, the vocation of research is something that the university has a monopoly on. And this monopoly is crumbling right now. But in terms of accreditation, in terms of the, the cybernetics of the university, the, the grade being an access code gets into certain parts of the job market, that, that's the real problematic element of the university for me. It, can, it, it does indeed foster sites of refuge and its own undercommons, but that's in a way uh, in spite of the university's own intentions. I think to, to save education, in a sense, you can be like a Christian universalist about this. You know, it's, a, it's already saved. All education is already, already saved from the university. We can do like a Paul move and yeah, the university is, it's already been rendered inoperative by the free flow of information or by the, the clandestine or pirated flows of information. And it's just what we do in the time that remains to build up more spaces of refuge away from university and build up more communities of learning. So ultimately, to save education from university is is a way of doing. Is we're promoting a, a more intellectual culture, giving these sites of access when it's locked up. You're not going to get another Ways of Seeing by John Berger on the BBC. You're not going to get a fair hearing in any sort of you know British newspapers or any mainstream outlets. And the closest thing that in Anglophone culture that we have with a confrontation, or at least even an explanation of the kinds of theory we're working with now is Glenn fucking Beck. Glenn sure Beck has not? put the coming insurrection in front of more people <laughs> than anyone else. Are you sure it's not Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Well, well, I mean, if you want to hear about the simulation theory and not talk about various kinds of allegations that are coming out of that guy, then yeah. All right. Well, I think what, oh, first of all, anything else from anyone in Acid Horizon on that topic? Just do it. Just write. Just do it. Just write. Matt. <laughs> I, had, I, had a few, I had a few thoughts on it. Um, they're kind of interrelated. I'm trying to make sense of them. Uh, but um, I think on the one hand, education has never really been entirely captured by the universities. I, I think it never has been. Um, but of course, there's a real sense in which, in terms of, Capitalism's relation to education in universities, of course, there's a the difference there is sort of the uh, salary and so on for people who want to do it as a full time and so on. But firstly, education was never never really entirely captured, and but we actually all have um, experience of this, whether it's um, a political organisation that you're a part of, or local group, or reading group, or whether that's you know in in our case. Our podcast, Acid Horizon, came out of an online reading group for Deleuze and Qatari Quarantine Collective, right? Um, that was an entirely sort of collectively self-organized online undertaking in which hundreds of people came together because they wanted to learn together and, you know, collaboratively. Um, and so we also, you know, there's podcasts and online reading groups like that, and there's Twitter, which, believe it or not, sometimes has some really quite good discussions, actually. Um, it's not always shit posting as good as the shit posting can be, um, <laughs> particularly Coop's top level. You know, I mean, there's YouTube and things like that as well. Um, you know, we have, I think, 
experience of these other forms that education can take and which we're probably all part of in some way or another as participants and, and, and so on. And, you know, one thought I had there is that um, when Hart and Negri talk about the idea of um, communication as a potential sort of line of flight, I suppose, of course, this isn't the only thing they mean. This is a more straightforward way, but I, perhaps this is what they sort of have in mind is that um, it, it, it opens up uh, pretty enormous possibilities for large-scale collaboration and education, even across sort of national boundaries and so on. You know, I mean, me and Adam are um, in England uh, or the UK, I'm in Scotland, and, you know, these two are in America, and it's it's coming together. Um, and part of what I think makes some of these online communities work is that there's, there is a sense of sort of fun and joy to them a lot of the time, right, um, which so quickly gets stripped away a lot a lot of the universities, right? I mean... I feel like everyone here has done sort of at least a, a, an undergrad degree. And so like, you probably know, like you, you go in and you're really excited about doing this degree and probably within a few weeks, you kind of hate it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think part of what makes it work at its best is, is when those, those sort of communities can have a, a bit of fun with uh, what we learn about um, together. So I, I don't know if it made much sense. Uh, I thought they were a little bit interconnected, but yeah, I, I don't think the university has ever monopolized education. And as time goes on, less and less so. And I think this the sort of stuff that we're taking part in is, is, is a good example of that. I think I just want to say that I'm ending my relationship with Nick Land, new relationship forged with Machinic Unconscious, happy hour. And it was awesome being with you guys. I completely respect your work, but it's more than just respect. I learn from your work all the time, uh, especially the most recently this past fall. I was binging your episodes during a very difficult time of, of, of my life. So it had a palliative effect. So thank you for that. And we love you guys. We love your Twitter posts and, and everything else. And just bring a- Taylor back. Yeah. And we're going to bring Taylor back. His Free Taylor. His free tailor, his Twitter handle will be liberated from the grips of Dorsey and his cronies, hopefully soon. But anyway, thank you from us. How funny is it that uh, Taylor's the one of the two, of the pair of us that gets suspended? <laughs> How funny is it that, that right? Taylor is the one out of all of us? I guess it, like <laughs> all, all of us have posted easily suspendable <laughs> content and Taylor gets banned for being for next. <laughs> <laughs> in a conversation with Neff, beating the gays too 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 wholesome for twitter honestly i was i was too wholesome for for that world it's okay because uh, you've, you've added you've added a new kind of it's a new mystique spice to the to the ma twitter <laughs> oh you know, my you never God. quite know what you're gonna get yeah, like, it, it, is it Cooper? Is it is it Cooper? Yeah, or Taylor? so like right, I, yeah. I, you know, I was kind of like throwing the dice, and I was like, yesterday I was talking to <laughs> Taylor. <about> yeah, <laughs> yes, you were. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's it, it is interesting to see. Uh, I'll 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 open up the app and and I'll be like, oh, you know, uh, I, I'll see responses to Coop, and I'll be like, okay, and and people people will will be like, is who is this? Uh, so that's that's kind of I think that's a new that's a new um, yeah it's it's literally the mystery. the first few sentences of the rise out right it's like <laughs> yeah. 
that's it we're we're a crowd you know yeah. we're uh we're coming imperceptible little... yes we are um and and honestly you know this is this is great i know that we uh we didn't get to answer everyone's questions so we'll have to keep some of them uh mm. some of the best ones we'll have to keep for for a future episode mm. yeah for sure sure for sure Cool. Yeah, cool. massive pornography now, folder now projects. we're just now we record another three-hour episode <laughs> <laughs> shit, shit. oh man <laughs> round two <laughs> round two <laughs>